Chapter Ten of Cut by the County, or Grace Darnell, by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Yet I must prove all truth to thee. The Colonel found his goddaughter in her own little sitting room, very unhappy, utterly unable to employ herself. Lady Darnell was in the next room. She would not allow Grace to remain with her. She preferred to be alone. She does nothing but brood, and I do nothing but brood, said Grace, who came out into the corridor to talk to the Colonel. If we go on much longer like this, we shall both be in a lunatic asylum. The colonel patted her gently on the shoulder, but could offer no better consolation. He had talked confidentially with the doctor on the previous evening, and he had little hope of his old comrade's recovery. "'Your Aunt Dora is active enough for the whole household,' he said bitterly. "'She is positively diabolical,' exclaimed Grace. "'The idea of her sending for a detective and worrying poor Lady Darnell with questions about that wretched money, as if it could do my dear father any good to find the burglar who shot him—' "'Of course, I should like the wretch to be hanged, but I can't think of him or anything else till my dearest father is out of danger. "'I am going for a prowl, Grace. I shan't wait for luncheon, as I want a long afternoon. "'The house is just a shade drearier when you are out of it,' said Grace, with a sigh. "'You have not had any letter or message from Mr. Comelock?' "'Not a word. I feel convinced that he is dead, that he died of cold and hunger under some hedge, but I feel as if it didn't matter. "'I dare say I shall feel sorry for him by and by when my father is out of danger.' I don't suppose he is dead, Grace. A man of that age is not so easily killed. If he were not dead or dying, I should have heard of him before now, said Grace, with conviction. Why did he come to this place except to see me? He was penniless, and he knows that I am rich. What more natural than that he should appeal to me? He could not go on existing without money. No, he could not go on without money, thought the colonel. The whole story seemed clear to him. This Comelock had been lurking about the ground that night with the hope of seeing Grace. He saw the lighted windows of Lady Darnell's room, opening upon a balcony which was easy to climb. He scaled the balcony, overheard Sir Allen's talk about the banknotes, saw where they were put, and made a rush for them when the room was empty. The whole transaction had grown out of the inspiration of the moment, an unpremeditated crime, suggested by opportunity. He had come to the house to get a few pounds from his sweetheart, and he had suddenly seen a chance of helping himself to four hundred. And now, for Grace's sake, the colonel wanted to get the scoundrel out of the way at any cost to himself of trouble or hard cash. He was not a poor man, and he could afford to spare a few hundreds for his favourite. The difficulty was where to find the man. If he had got clear off out of the clutches of the law, it was well, and he might rest upon his ill-gotten gains at a distance without inflicting evil upon Grace. But if he were hiding anywhere within thirty miles of Darnell, the odds were that he would fall into the hands of Mr. Penwern, and the whole story would come to light at the next court recessions. The colonel rode slowly down the avenue on his old bay cob, a cob that was the very essence of sobriety and good manners as a hack, and yet, when inspired by a viewhola and good company, could go at a tremendous pace in a burst across country. He rode very slowly, meditating where and how he was to pursue his quest of Mr. Pomelock. He had already visited almost every cottage and explored every copse or common in the neighborhood. Half down the avenue he met Edward Colchester on foot. "'I was just going up to the house to make an inquiry,' he said. "'Any improvement in Sir Allen since the morning?' The colonel shook his head. Fredrickson is to be here tomorrow, he said, and if the bullet can be extracted, then there may be some hope. But just at present, things look very bad. Poor Grace, said Colchester, how sad it is for her. I should like to go and talk to her a bit, if you think I shouldn't be a nuisance. I am sure you would not be a nuisance, and your society would do Grace good. She is in a wretched state, poor girl. If you hurry up to the house, you'll find them at lunch, and Grace can hardly refuse to see you, said the colonel, who was a secret ally of Monsieur de Camelot's rival. "'A thousand thanks!' exclaimed the young squire, starting off at a run. The family were at luncheon. Mr. Colchester asked to be shown into the dining-room, determined not to be regulated to the solitude of the drawing-room, and to a formal interview with Dora. They could not turn him away from their table in a house famous for hospitality, and, however dismal the meal might be, it would be rapture, a sad kind of rapture, of course, 
to sit by grace in sympathetic silence and admire the outline of cheek and throat the little rings of auburn hair which clustered in the hollow of her neck the heavy coil of plates the gracious contour of the head dora darnall and her niece were seated at opposite ends of the table as far apart as they could be grace sat with an empty plate before her the image of despair she gave a wan smile when Mr. Colchester came in and took his seat by her side, uninvited, except by the servant who laid a cover for him. "'How very good of you to come again,' said Dora, with a faint emphasis on the last word. "'I hope you don't mind my coming so often. No, not any lunch, thank you, to the servant. But I really could not rest without looking round again. I have to dine at Malsford tonight, Sir Roger Brandon's, don't you know, a nine-mile drive, a horrid bore. I don't feel a bit in the queue for going out. This—this this sad business has upset me more than I can say.' Grace lifted those heavy eyelids of hers and gave him a grateful look out of the soft brown eyes, such luminous eyes they had been during the days of her gladness, but to Edward Colchester they seemed even lovelier in sorrow. That soft, appealing look went straight to his heart. Yes, she was glad to see him. She had been living in an awful solitude of grief and fear, fearing her father's death, fearing for her lover, that lover of whose existence she could not think without a shudder. Oh, the folly of those Parisian days, the silly romance, the fatuity of it all— what a burden she had laid upon herself, what a chain she had forged for her young life. If this faithful admirer of hers, who looked up to her with such respectful devotion, if he could know how idiotic she had been, how must his admiration be changed to scorn, his regard to loathing? It was the thought of this which made her uncivil to him. She wanted to keep him at arm's length, if possible. She would not give him reason to reproach her for hypocrisy and double-dealing. But today, in the utter desolation of her life, she turned involuntarily to this friend of her childhood— how good and true he was, how frank and honest and straightforward, not so elegant, not so accomplished or fascinating as Victor de Camelac, but what a thoroughbred English gentleman, without fear or reproach, a man to stand before kings and not be ashamed. "'Is Lady Darnall too ill to come down to lunch?' inquired Mr. Colchester. "'She is not ill, but she is very miserable, poor thing,' answered Grace. "'And she gives way to her grief,' said Dora. "'I always envy the people who give way to their grief. They generally get over it so soon.' "'I do not think Lady Darnall will get over her grief very soon, Aunt Dora, if my father is taken away from us,' said Grace, with a stifled sob. "'How pale you are looking,' said Edward Colchester. "'I don't believe you have had any fresh air since this trouble began. Will you come for a turn on the terrace? It is a lovely afternoon.' "'Yes,' said Grace, rising suddenly. "'I will come. I think I should go mad if I stayed in this house any longer. I must go upstairs and hear the last report of my father, and then I will go for a ramble in the garden. You'll come, Aunt Dora?' "'No, Grace, I shall not leave the house. I can exist without fresh air.' Grace looked embarrassed, but having accepted Mr. Colchester's invitation, she could not recede all at once. The withdrawal would be too marked. She went away and came back in about ten minutes, with a white Shetland shawl wrapped around her shoulders. "'There is no change in the sick room,' she said. "'It is always the same answer, no change, no improvement. Oh, those nurses, what machines they are! I wonder if they seem a little more human when their own people are ill? Come, Mr. Colchester.' She went out to the terrace, walking very quickly in her nervous agitation. It was an infinite relief to feel the fresh autumnal breeze blowing over her face and hair, to breathe in a wider space. It seemed to her as if it were weeks since she had felt that cool reviving air and looked across that wide expanse of lawn to the wider region of oaks and beeches which had been the fairy forest of her childish fantasies. Through just such a wood, Red Riding Hood had gone unconscious to her doom. Through just such a wood, Fatima's brothers had ridden to the rescue of Bluebeard's last victim— in just such a wood, beauty had dwelt meekly in the palace of the enchanted beast. In just such a wood, she had bent over the dying monster, breathing soft words of pity into his ear, and had seen him restored to the grace and glory of manhood, the perfect prince of fairyland. With all her heart, Grace loved the domain that had been her cradle and her playground. It was a delicious afternoon, the low sun golden above the undulating line of beaches, with their rounded crests dark against the glowing sky, 
wave above wave, billowy masses of dark verdure, soon to be touched with the varied hues of decay. For a little while, Grace and her companion walked about the lawn in silence, she too unhappy to speak, he racking his brain for something appropriate, or at least an inoffensive subject of conversation. How well the shrubberies are looking, he said at last, feeling as if the remark were a flash of inspiration. Now the shrubberies had been Sir Alan's peculiar pride. He had filled them with new and rare conifers, with every variety of flowering shrubs. They had been found with the most scientific preparations that can enrich the soil. They had been watched and sheltered from the frost, and cared for as if they had been precious human things. Yes, they are too lovely, said Grace. I never saw that Picea nobilis look so superb as it does this year. My father is so proud of it, and to think that he may never see those trees again. Here she began to cry, and again Edward Colchester felt that he was a brute. He seemed predestined to say brutish things, to put his fingertip upon open wounds. He walked by her side while she dried her tears, his heart aching for her, his love flowing out toward her like a magnetic stream. They were in one of the winding shrubbery paths, which they too had trodden many a time, gaily, carelessly, as comrades and playfellows, in those remote days before his friendly feeling for a pretty girl had ripened into passionate love, before trouble or care had darkened her young life. It was a path completely screened by conifers and evergreens out of sight of the house. In a forest they could not have been more alone. At the end of the path there was a little Swiss chalet, a fantastic summer-house of carved wood in which Mr. Colchester had often had five o'clock tea, after a warm afternoon at lawn-tennis. It was Grace's favorite retreat in fine weather, and her books and drawing materials were scattered on the rustic table just as she had left them a week ago. She looked at them with a listless air, and stopped to put the books together. Browning, Maud, La Petite Fadette, she said, as she gathered up the volumes. How happy was that last morning I sat here reading. Such a warm morning, like July. Everything was so lovely, the air so delicious. I forgot that I had a care. What care could you have to forget a week ago? asked Colchester. Oh, there are cares in every life. Everybody has some kind of burden to carry. But I never knew what real sorrow meant till my father's life was in danger. Her tears flowed afresh at the thought of that peril, and then Edward Colchester forgot himself altogether and caught her in his arms and kissed the sad, tear-stained face again and again. My beloved, let me share your grief. Let me be all in all to you in your day of sorrow. My dearest, you know how fondly I love you. It was all done in a moment. She was in his arms, his beloved— accepting his devotion the passive recipient of betrothal kisses for such kisses could mean nothing less than betrothal they were the first lover's kisses that had ever touched her lips never before had she felt the passionate pulse of a lover's heart beating against her own she tore herself from his arms how can you how can you she cried reproachfully to talk of love when my father lies in his deathbed i know they all believe it is his deathbed i hate you for such heartlessness gracie is it heartless to adore you to want to comfort you in your sorrow he asked reproachfully I have been quietly worshipping you for a year, waiting, waiting for some sign of awakening love on your part. I should not have dared to speak even yet, only to see you in tears and not be able to comfort you was too much. You cannot comfort me, I am full of trouble, she answered passionately. She had flung her books upon the table, and had left the chalet hurriedly, and was walking quickly along the path that led to the house. He felt that she was angry with him, that he had, as it were, violated the sanctity of her sorrow, and yet he believed himself her accepted lover. For one delicious moment she had rested in his arms, her eyes had looked at him not in anger but in answering love, those lips of hers had yielded themselves to his kisses, he knew that she loved him, that he had but to wait for a more fitting time to press his suit, and he had her father upon his side, the good old colonel too. He had fortune, youth, everything that makes fitness in union, and he knew of no likely rival. Could he doubt that he should win her? His heart glowed with triumph after he hurried after her swift footsteps, overtook her, and stood at her side. "'Forgive me, Grace. I will wait for a happier day,' he said. "'That day will never come for you and me,' she answered coldly. "'Pray forget that you have been so foolish, as I shall try to do.' 
Forget those kisses? Never. Grace, I will not be put off like this. I will wait. I will not even speak of my love until your father is out of danger. But you must not thrust me from you coldly. You must not deny my right to claim you by and by. Never, 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 she said. I tell you it can never be. Then you do not love me, he cried, seizing her hands, holding her there on the path, face to face with him, beside himself with love and anger. You were deceiving me just now, or I was mad and deceived myself. You do not care a straw for me. Say that, Grace. Only say that you don't care for me, and you shall never see my face again. She could not say it, nor for the life of her could she so belie her beating heart, which had gone out to him as a bird to its nest, which belonged to him as a slave to her master. I cannot engage myself to you, she said. There are reasons. What reasons? There can be no reason except that you detest me. Why not say so at once and make an end of the matter? If there were obstacles, I would overcome them. Give me one grain of love, no bigger than a mustard seed, and I would remove mountains. But there are no obstacles. We have everything on our side. Your father likes me, he was my father's dearest friend, and would like to see us married. I can never marry you, said Grace, sadly. Why do you press me with painful questions? Please let go my hands. He released her instantly, with a gloomy look. I see. There is someone else whom you love better, he said. No, there is no one, she said, impetuously, and then repented that she had so spoken. Grace, you are a mystery. If you would only say that you hate me— I will not tell a lie, she answered, walking on toward the house, he still by her side. If you have any compassion for my present unhappiness, you will say no more. Then I will say no more. I know I am a brute, an utterly brutish brute. I suppose, having behaved so badly, I must not come to Darnell any more. You can do as you like about that, she answered wearily. Then I shall like to come. Life would be a burden if I could not see you now and then. In her heart of hearts, she liked to see him, for her life would have been a blank without that pleasant companionship. She had snubbed him, unmercifully, ever since her return from Paris, and yet he had never wavered in his devotion. And he had his reward, though he knew it not, for he had won her in spite of herself. But she was a true Darnel, and had a loyal regard for a promise once given, and in an evil hour she had given a promise which bound her to Victor de Comelac or to lifelong celibacy. Goodbye, she said curtly, and Mr. Colchester was fain to accept the dismissal. They were close to the hall door by this time. He had no excuse for lingering any longer. "'Good-bye, Grace. My Grace,' he said, with a final flash of determination. And then, as he walked slowly down the avenue, he repeated to himself, "'My Grace, mine, yes, my dear, mine, for I mean to win you.' He was sorely troubled in mind as he walked back to the manor through those rural Wiltshire lanes, with their tall, tangled hedgerows. That severer order of agriculture which cuts down hedges to the quick, absorbs waste places, and uproots the timber of centuries, had not yet spoiled the manor. Mr. Colchester's farmers were content to be slovenly and picturesque, as their fathers and grandfathers had been before them, under the sway of the easiest of landlords. He went home full of trouble and perplexity. There had been that in Grace's eyes as she looked upon him which seemed to him an assurance of her love. There had been that in the sweet mouth, with lips half-parted and faintly tremulous, which told of deepest feeling. For some blissful moments he had held her in his arms, flushed with triumph, believing himself her accepted lover. And then she had thrust him from her, and told him that she could never be his wife. There was a contradiction here that argued a mystery, a mystery in the life of a girl who had been to him the incarnation of purity and truth. If she could deceive, if she could stoop to double-dealing, there was an end of Edward Colchester's faith in womanhood. End of chapter 10